Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can spend our hobby time and hobby dollars on. It can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the whole purpose of this podcast. It's to talk to the people who make these wonderful games that we know and love. It's to talk to uh, talk about some of the big industry events that are happening and to talk to the folks who, like us, love these games and to talk about the games that we are playing. And I guess that is what we are doing today. Now, I have been looking sideways at a game for quite a while, and I've been wanting to cover it on the cast literally for years. And the opportunities with lockdowns and everything else has never quite come to fruition. But I wanted to uh, do... dedicate an episode to our good friend Peter West. I know he's been looking at a a game or two, and uh, I think this is an episode he might enjoy. To jump back to what game we are covering, every time I go to look at this game online, I end up going to YouTube to see playthrough videos. And when I do, there is one channel that I end up on again and again and again. And it's an old personal favorite of mine. So when it was time to talk about Spectre Ops, I think it is entirely appropriate that we bring on the gentleman who I see playing this game more than any other because I'm watching his channel all the GD time. Of course, I'm talking about Travis and Tabletop CP. Travis, welcome back to Cast Dice. How you doing, brother? Doing good. Thanks, Brad. Now, for those who aren't familiar, uh, Tabletop CP is a YouTube channel, and you stream games or, I guess, just uh, post videos of your games um, that you play, and you usually post, what, one a, one game a week? Yeah, uh, that's our average. Sometimes two, but usually it's one. Now, I've watched you play, God, Chain of Command, Bolt Action, Spectre Ops, Dead Man's Hand, uh, Sharp's Practice. The games go on and on, uh, and uh, many, many more. Uh, Pulp Alley. I, I guess you're like me in a little bit in that um, you you play a few games and uh, you like to talk about those games. Can you tell us a little bit more about the channel? I know you've done that previously, but for those who didn't hear you the last time you were on, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, Tabletop CP, how it started, and um, what's the idea behind the channel these days? Because as as with this podcast and other online you know content creators, things evolve once they start, don't they? They do. Uh, We started out as a Bolt Action only uh, YouTube channel Mm -hmm. about five years ago. Uh, We were called Bolt Action CP. And we played nothing but Bolt Action for a couple years. And that was fun. Um, We still play Bolt Action quite a bit. But I decided, or we decided, that we wanted to try some other games. And so we did. We started playing Chain of Command. And people kept saying, hey, I skipped right over this. I didn't know Chain of Command. I just saw Bolt Action CP and... Mm -hmm. I didn't click on it, so I wound up changing the name because we decided to start adding a few more uh, games, and we tried to keep it to about three games, but that uh, that seemed impossible because there's mm-hmm. so many good games out there. Uh, but we were thinking, okay, we can probably keep about three rule sets in our head and do okay with them. And now we're probably up to like five or six, maybe seven different rule sets that we're trying to remember, so... Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it's a challenge, but uh, yeah, it's just we're mainly uh, battle reports. I do some um, tutorials now and then, but it's ninety-five uh, percent uh, battle reports. Now, I mean, you have the last time you were on, you had a lot of people watching, but having looked at your view numbers uh, in recent uh, videos, they are really jumping up. And now you're being sponsored by, you know, game mat companies. People are sending you things. People are noticing. That's got to be great, right? Yeah, it is. It's uh, it is good. Um, I never really got into it to get stuff, but uh, it is nice to get the mats because, as you know, those are quite expensive. So, oh, yeah. Um, if I always said if I was going to have a sponsor, I would like to have a game mat sponsor because I love the mats. They totally change the look of the board. I mean, instantly. It can take your board to something that you never even thought it could be just by throwing a mat on there. And having a wide variety of them is very useful. Agreed. And, I mean, you've had some of the – let me back up by saying that one of the reasons why your games are so great to watch on YouTube, amongst other reasons – um, a, the quality of your videos are fantastic, so it's really clear to see what's happening. You explain what's going on on the tabletop. Um, I know that when we were talking a lot about Warlords of Erewhon, for example, you did a great job of explaining what, how the special rules interacted with the units on the tabletop. Um, and for people who are learning the game, I often sent them your way because it was, well, here's the game I've been talking about, but now you get to actually see it with an explanation. Um, but the thing that really jumps out besides the quality, besides the great commentary and content is just the aesthetic of your tables. Your terrain is outstanding. Um, I mean, you have a, a wide variety of terrain that you put on the tabletop. You're not just seeing, you know, battlefield in a box, pre-painted terrain, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with. That's often what I roll with. But your stuff is often hand-painted, and it, there's a wonderful variety to it. It actually, especially with the Dead Man's Hand and the Spectre Ops games that I'm looking at, the it actually looks like an area might be. There's, there's, a, there's a great amount of um, detailed scatter terrain amongst your buildings, uh, in between things. I mean, it just feels like, yeah, you're actually there, and it really does make it immersive. Um, you must spend a ton of time painting terrain, let alone armies and models. Yeah. Um, I would say uh, probably maybe half the time now. Now now I seem to be spending a lot more time editing because I got this new editor, and it's it takes a hell of a lot longer than the old editor where I just threw it in there, put a bunch of transitions, t took 15 minutes, and that was it. But... Uh, I'm still now I got to try to squeeze in the painting time and it's it's taken up more time to uh, edit than I am used to. So my painting time has gone down. But luckily, I've got so much stuff already that I don't need a lot of new stuff. Yeah. So it's it's not that big a deal to uh, uh, invest more time into the editing um, as opposed to creating more models and more terrain. Yeah. And I think what having watched some of the the games on your channel. Um, I think one of the things that really helps that, and I know it helps me as a gamer and as a collector of terrain, is that a lot of the games that we're playing now either overlap sort of theme-wise, World War II, Westerns, um, you know, if we're talking genre, 
or um, there are miniature agnostic games in particular. And so you can reuse terrain for different systems. Um, I know that you ran a series of Western games using different rule sets, and you're able to recreate Western towns, different configurations, using a lot of the same buildings, but you're able to play different games in different locations, and they look different, but still recognize the core of your terrain in that setup. Right. Yeah, like the those Charlie Foxtrot Pantiel buildings, we've used those for... Uh, Western, we've used them in Sharp Practice. We've used them for Spectre. Um, that's kind of one of my one of my main goals when I am building terrain or something is to try to get something that I can use for multiple settings. And it's in in historical games, it's not really that hard. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, let's dig in a little bit to one of those settings, shall we? Now, if you've listened to the show for any length of time, uh, you know that I, I like games from all over the place. Uh, I play science fiction games. I play fantasy games. Uh, I play historical games. I play all sorts of games. But over the years, in all my years of podcasting, I don't think I've ever talked about a modern game system, as in one set in the modern era. Um, I don't know if that's because I had a lot of friends who went off and uh, fought in Iraq and Afghanistan and it was a little too close to home. Uh, I don't, I'm just not sure. It's just never grabbed me. And yet I love movies like Sicario, um, you know, movies that are set in sort of the modern, I guess, games where you would use the word operator. I don't think I've ever, ever looked at a game like that, except for Spectre Operations. Now, I've never talked about it. Um, it is a game out of the UK. Uh, it came out, well, the second edition of the game, the most modern version, came out in 2019. Um, and it is a very detailed, inclusive rule set. You would, you would say it's almost skirmish in size. It is smaller model counts. And because of that, you get more detail. Now, if we open up the rule book, it, I think it does a very good job of setting the scene. Bringing the bleeding edge of modern combat to the wargaming table. For force-to-force firefights, from intelligence agents collecting and securing a stolen warhead to criminal gangs committing one last heist before getting out of the business. All of the scenarios can be easily recreated on the tabletop using these fast-paced and easy-to-learn rules. Now, I do love an easy-to-learn rule system that has depth and teeth. This feels like it has a little more detail than that uh, explanation uh, implies, but that it does do a wonderful job of having sort of the basic rules at the beginning of the game of the book, and it is a long, detailed book. But towards the back, there's a lot more optional and additional rules that really do allow you to dig into uh, different aspects of scenarios that you could play. What are your initial thoughts of Spectre Operations, Travis? Because you have played it a lot. Um, and at this point, I know that you said you hadn't played it in a little while and you were a little rusty, but I know you've just played some games recently. What are your thoughts? Um, well, I, I love the game. It's, um, it's ideal for people who like to create their own scenarios. Now, there are a few basic scenarios that you can that are in the book, but... The idea is that you make your own, and uh, the game is just so open. It's like a sandbox-type game. Uh, you can do anything you want in the game, and you can write that into your scenario, and you can play it on the tabletop. It's just uh, it's really good, and 
and the, as far as the rules go, yeah, they're the sim the basic rules of to shoot to hit are pretty easy to learn. But like you said, there's so many optional rules for night fighting and uh, un you can go underwater and all kinds of different stuff. Um, it's just uh, unlimited, only limited by your imagination, really. Yeah, right. Now, this is not a game that you might... I mean, there are additional... If you actually go to the website, you can download point values for the models and the weapons and all of the different uh, things you can bring on the tabletop from the additional rules, and there's a lot. And so I guess you could play this game competitively on the tabletop if you played some basic scenarios, but that isn't really how this game is written, is it? it it's more of a... A very it's a narrative focused game you are literally creating scenarios and i know with a lot of your games you actually don't bother with the point values you actually just go okay i'm gonna have some of these guys and some of these guys and you put them down on the tabletop um and you are a, i mean you know roughly that really inexperienced um ill-equipped uh, militia or cartel forces um, you know, you know roughly how many of those might equal, you know, an elite operator or, an, you know, a trained soldier with reasonable military gear. I mean, there is those ratios, but you don't have to dig into individual point values of every little piece of equipment because you're building a narrative scenario and the game is fairly balanced in that regard, right? It is. Um, yeah, you can do points uh, if you wanted to each take a certain amount of points and build your force with whatever you want. You could do that. But like you said, I don't, I don't ever do that. I've just kind of learned by playing, um, what equals what on the table. So if you're going to have one operator, you're probably going to need about five or six militia and, um, trained and, and professional are, you know, they scale the same way pretty much. So just through experience, you can learn uh, what you need and, and what's worth what, but, uh, Pretty much, you just throw out there whatever it is that your scenario calls for. And if it's not balanced, then it's not balanced. And I know not everything's balanced all the time. So it's, um, you can do it either way, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I like how when you are building the narrative aspect of these missions, um, once you start pulling some of those additional rules in, as you were talking about, you can do things like sneak up. You can, you know, infiltrate compounds. You can sneak up on sentries. You can breach walls. Um, as you say, you can, you know, s swim in under the cover of darkness. Um, and you know, there are rules for spotting people and for random sentry movement until you are spotted. Um, there's just a lot of really interesting um, detail that I mean, we've all seen. Those movies where you know they're you know you're trying to infiltrate a compound, uh, you're trying to you know grab a scientist and then get out. This game has the rules for all of that, um, and you just need to cherry pick the bits that you want out of the advanced rules and you know s bolt them onto the basic rules. And you know, as we say in Australia, Bob's your uncle. You're ready to go. Um, would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. It's uh, it's just wide open. It's got rules for, I mean, all the vehicle rules. It's got off-table assets. You can call in airstrikes. You can call in mortar barrage. Um, there's a nuclear and biological chemical rules. It's pretty much literally everything you can think of in modern war uh, you can apply to the scenario that you've created. Yeah. 
Now, one of the reasons why I picked up Spectre Operations was not actually for the modern era. As I said, that, that isn't necessarily my wheelhouse. I actually picked up the game because I heard several people saying that it might be a good system because it is so sort of open world sandbox and you're creating your own scenarios that it was a great system to use for Vietnam. Now, I've been wanting to do some Vietnam wargaming on the tabletop for a long time, um, and there are some awesome bolt-action Vietnam rules, uh, and I'm a very slow painter, and painting armies uh, at the moment, especially since I'm working on my G.I. Joe stuff, isn't the most... Um, it takes me a long time, and I I'm not sure I would be able to get everything done to play full-size bolt-action games, but those are more open warfare. If I wanted to do something that was a little more, you know, akin to what you might see in the movie Platoon at the beginning, um, skirmishes, um, ambushes, fighting in the jungle. Honestly, I think this game does a better job of representing those conflicts than, say, Bolt Action does. And even if you are playing Bolt Action at the smaller level, now I love Bolt Action. But, you know, it doesn't work for every situation. And I think this game does a great job of that. The only thing you need to do is strip out some of the modern gear on some of the soldiers. You know, people won't be wearing body armor. They won't have red dot sights. And you, but the rules for the weapons and actually some of the vehicle profiles are actually already in the book and you're ready to go. You also want to play um, Cold War Gone Hot. This might be the rule set for you as well. Uh, if you want to play smaller, uh, you know, again, infiltrating the, the Russian missile silo or, uh, you know, g grabbing the, the drug dealer um, or, you know, rescuing your, trying to think of the movie here, rescuing a, um, your, your kidnapped daughter uh, in the compound of the, um, the dictator who's trying, I'm trying to get commando here, guys. Uh, but you you see what I'm saying. It it works for the 80s. Yeah. It works for Vietnam. It doesn't just work for the modern era. Um, and so I think that is fantastic. And that is absolutely what I'm planning to use this for as soon as I get my Viet Cong painted. Um, Travis, have you used it for anything but modern? Because I know you've been playing this a lot. I have not used it, but um, I have thought about it. And it could be used for World War II. If, if you wanted, it has mm. stats for two era tanks. Um, like you said, just strip out all the modern stuff and just go with your bolt action rifle or your submachine gun. And uh, the rules themselves can be applied to any era. So if you're trying to sneak into a, you know, a V1 missile site mm -hmm. in the middle of the night, you do that. or if you want to do um, just a straight up battle, like something at the end of Saving Private Ryan, you could even do that because there's rules for uh, forming squads as well. It's not all individual guys. You can run um, squads of guys as well. That's right. That's right. Um, now let's, I guess, well, I'm suddenly feeling the urge to paint some commandos. I don't know why. Anyway, um, let's, let's talk about, um, how this game works. Now, typically with a lot of these games, um, with tabletop games, you see, you go, I go systems, and that leads to people setting up alpha strikes or, I mean, it's why I love games like bolt action where you have the, the, order dice mechanic where you're pulling things out. So you're never quite sure who's going to be activating a model next. And it really makes for an inclusive, immersive game play experience, as you guys have heard me say a million times. Now, this game doesn't use that. This game is you go, I go. But at the beginning of each turn, you are rolling for initiative. And so that means 
you could end up going twice. Um, so you, you can't just set up knowing who the next person is because you may not know that. Am I getting that right? How do you think that plays on the, on the tabletop? Because I know for games like Age of Sigmar, it, it didn't work so well because people were trying to intentionally grab um, the next turn's uh, initiative, and that led to almost hyper-alpha uh, striking on the tabletop and a lot of feel-bads. I don't think that's the case with this game. Would you agree? It's Yeah, it's not like that. Um, really, the way it works is you roll for initiative, and then there's phases. So you have your command phase, your movement phase, your uh, combat phase. And even within the turn, those alternate between players. Right. So say you got the initiative. Uh, in the movement phase, you would move all your guys, and then I would move all my guys. So I could react to your move. So if you're going to move up and try to shoot me, before you get a chance to shoot me, I have a chance to move out of the way. So I could duck behind, uh, duck into an alley or duck behind something because I'm going second. So okay. sometimes it's not always a bad thing if you go second because you have a, a chance to react to the movement or the positioning of your opponent uh, before they get a chance to pull the trigger. That's right. But you can also set up situations where people can go on Overwatch. Um, right. So I know from a game that I watched on your channel where you had a squad of guys, rather sort of low experience guys coming around a corner and you wanted to charge at a hotel to go capture an objective. And um, there were people on the ba uh, the balconies of that hotel and your guys ran out. They got shot up, um, heavily suppressed, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, and then they were basically ineffective. But you had said on the video that had you had the initiative, you would have had more of a chance to get out there before you got opened up on. So again, it, it's it's knowing when you're getting your moment, right? Um, as far as choosing your moments to make those decisions. Um, so this gives you, there are hard decisions to be made, I think is what I'm trying to say. Um, how do you think that plays out? Yeah, that's, and that's what you know, all good games are about forcing the player to make decisions. And this, this is no different. It has a lot of decisions. Uh, you have to decide, uh, do I want to stand here and shoot? Do I want to move out of the way? Do I want to try to move around behind and set something up? Um, that game you were just talking about, I, I totally botched that because I hadn't played in a while and I popped out and I forgot about suppression and I forgot a couple of things and my plan totally went sideways because I thought, okay, I'm going to pop out. Yeah, I'll take a couple of hits, but then I'll, I'll be able to maybe get lucky and unload on these guys. Well, by the time that my time came to do anything, my guys were pinned and uh, all their stats had dropped so low that there was just nothing I could do except sit there for pretty much the whole rest of the game. So it's, uh, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a lot of tough choices to make. Yeah, this I, I was I get that impression from having watched it. it it's a game I need to play, um, but I do like a game that forced tactical decisions because, as you say, that's what makes a good game a good game. Um, now, often with these games, you roll for initiative, uh, or you have you know you choose the initiative who's going first. Star Wars Star Wars Legion, you flip cards to see who goes first. Obviously, Volt Action, you have the Order dice mechanic. In this game, you're rolling. Um, experienced uh, teams have a have a higher chance of, you know, seizing the initiative because they are trained better. Um, however, the more units you have that are suppressed and pinned, 
uh, and or routed, um, that will, of course, influence that role as well. So if your force is really highly trained and they're in good shape, you have a very good chance of seizing the initiative. However, if you are beaten up and you have a bunch of guys who have you know, gone out, um, if morale is low, especially if you're poorly trained, you're going to really struggle with that role, right? Yeah, big time. And the operators, they, they ignore, I think they can only be suppressed or something like that. Yes. So they can't even get routed. And so that limits their minuses on their initiative role to minus one. But if you're going in with a bunch of militia and trained uh, and they start taking uh, suppression and you start failing those tests, then you're going to get a lot of negatives and it's going to be a lot uh, harder for you to get the initiative. But it is still a dice game, so there's always a chance. Well, not always. There could be a time when you just physically, or you can't possibly beat them. But most of the time, you're going to always have a chance, even if it's a, you know, a, he needs a one and you need a six type of thing. But uh, it, it's balanced quite well that way. But um, yeah, if you're if you're operators, you're good to go on uh, on initiative most of the time, unless the other team also has operators. And that's the most elite that you would have in your force. Yeah. Now, if you have mixed a mixed force, like I've seen in a lot of your games, where you have a few operators, where you have a couple of squads of maybe trained soldiers and then a couple of squads of maybe inexperienced guys running around, um, to use bolt-action terminology, um, you, would, um, you would use the, the highest value? Is that how, if I understand this right? Yeah, use the uh, command value, the highest command value on your team, which is usually always going to be your your elite uh, leader. So a, like an elite commander is a six. So we stay away from that. We um, Mainly because when you're making, when you're calling in off table assets and stuff, you have to pass a command check and it's impossible to fail with a elite commander. So uh, we usually go with elite sergeants. They're a five, which at least gives you a chance to fail something like that. But then you're rolling on uh, five and you add a D six to your roll. And if you're fighting against, like a trained sergeant, like a three or a four, mm -hmm. um, minus all the, the modifiers. Uh, it's always almost almost always going to be the operators if they're if they play it right. Now they right. could screw it up somehow, but uh, normally uh, that's how it works out. And we've seen that in all the movies. If you look at Black Hawk Down, you know moments where operators things just don't work out, uh, and uh, the other yeah. people seize the initiative. But you know. As we say, bolt action happens, or in this case, dice happen, and you never know quite what you're going to get, right? Yeah, and I mean, it's not a, it's not un, unheard of to lose operators either. So, and when you only have four or five of them against you know 20 militia, even though you're way better, you still need to be careful because it only takes one lucky shot to take one of these guys down, and then suddenly losing one out of five, you're you're in big trouble already. Oh yeah. Especially if you look at the, the point value breakdown of the difference between what an elite operator is and what an yeah. untrained militiaman is, uh, it's, a, it's a 10 to 1 uh, ratio. Yeah. And so that is a right. very big difference. Yep. And it, if you have enough guys blasting, you know, a shot might go through. Mm -hmm. So well, it's, it's realistic in that sense. Yeah, exactly. Well, if we look at gaming in general, tabletop gaming, in, in a lot of games, when a model activates, it, it gets, two, gets to make two activation moves, whatever, a move or a shoot or a move move and a shoot and an action. or That's how it works for quite a few games. Now, this game adds an extra layer before you even move, before you start shooting. 
the command phase. Can you talk to us a little bit about the command phase? Because that is where a lot of the the, the tactics, the decision making comes from and what your what your your guys are gonna be able to do on the tabletop. Yeah, so the command phase, um, that's where you would put guys on Overwatch or um, you rally. So if you're if you do have suppression, you can you can attempt to rally during the command phase. Uh, you can split your squads up during the command phase, and you can call in off-table assets. So if you have a a Hellfire missile or some kind of off-table asset, that's when you would call it in to see if you can contact them and see if they'll send it. And uh, what else is there? Calling for reinforcements. Um, yeah. You know, if if you've been ambushed and but you have other forces in the area, you can call them in. I know I've seen that in games as well. Um, oh. Yeah, scanning. You can also scan. So that's another kind of cool, cool thing in this game is if you can set up, um, like if I was the going to be the bad guy, uh, militia terrorist, I could set up IEDs and trip wires and stuff around the board, and I can mark those on a map. And then you would have to come onto the board, and what you can do, one of the things you can do during the command phase would be to scan an area. So if you're going to go through like an alleyway or something, mm-hmm. you can do a scan check. And if you pass it, you'll, you'll note, you'll notice that tripwire going across so you can avoid it. If you don't, you don't know if it's there or not. And if you go, if you uh, trip it, then the thing goes off and you're most likely going to be killed. So that's a, that is a really big way for kind of uh, terrorist militia type forces uh, to get even with the operators mm-hmm. is if you give them some kind of mines or trip wires or IEDs, stuff like that uh, to balance it a little bit. And that, that will slow down the operators quite a bit because they're not going to be able to just rush in from cover to cover and just, just take you out. They got to be a little bit cautious moving through certain areas. If they know that there's going to be something there like a mine or uh, it could be just a trip flare if it's a night game, mm-hmm. and a trip flare goes off, and suddenly they're lit up, and everyone can see them. So there's just a ton of options that you can do. And uh, especially kind of if stuff. you have sentries, right, who sort of are pre-programmed and have to move certain ways until you know until you're spotted. As soon as you have that trip flare, then all of a sudden the other player is active, right, and then yeah, all yeah, hell breaks be alerted. Loose. Yep, and that's really that's a really fun way to play the game is to. Um, these night infiltrations where you have to sneak in and, and steal something or, or uh, whatever it might be, but you're trying to sneak around and the sentries are going to be facing random directions. And if you don't get the initiative and you're kind of just standing out in the open when they turn around, you know, that's, they're going to spot you and everyone's going to be alerted and then it's game on. So yeah, it's, it's really cool. Now, you did mention, and I know we've skirted around this a couple times, but you mentioned the breakdown order, where squad leaders can order squads to break into smaller teams, fire teams, so to speak. If you, I know you can have individual models. You can have snipers off by themselves. You can set up individual guys in different places. And I know in other times you'll have squads of guys walking around working collectively together, um, collaboratively to, to accomplish something. What's the benefit of using a squad in Spectre Operations, why not just have 20 dudes running off by themselves? Why do you want guys grouped together? Um, how does that work for the game? Well, I think um, I think that, like, if you're a militia, I think if you're over 10 guys, you get a bonus on your 
command stat. And uh, there's other orders that you can do. Like there's a, I forgot what exactly what it's called, but you can have a, a squad fire at, at the same target. And it gives you some bonuses if you're all a squad. And, uh, and if you're if you're a militia or a low level guy, you're you're not going to live very long just running around by yourself. You're really only your only chance is really to have numbers and hope that you can just um, wipe out the opponent with some shooting. Yeah. Well, I think it's called fire control order that does that. Yeah, that's it. Um, that's it. But how so does that? One of the... Sorry, go ahead. I was just saying that that's what it was called. Yeah. Now, th these don't automatically happen, right? Um, people need to make orders. Is this um, is this something you need to test for? Yeah, you uh, you roll on your uh, the models or the squad's command stat, so you have to roll equal to or less than. So uh, operators are like a five, so you need a five or less, which is not hard to do. Well, if you're a single militia guy, you got to roll like a two or less. To do anything. Ooh. And this is a six-sided <laughs> die for those wondering. We have not said that. Yeah. Uh, Spectre Ops uses six-sided die. Um, yeah. Now, suppression factors into squads a lot. Now, suppression is a little bit like the pin mechanic of bolt action, but it goes into a little more detail, doesn't it? Yeah, there's different levels. So you've got your suppressed, pinned, and then you got your routed. So suppressed is, you know, you're taking a little bit of fire and then you start losing stats. So it affects your move stat and it affects your shooting stat. So you start, and then when you get up to pinned, it's even worse. So it's like minus four. two or three, you're shooting. Oh yeah. And then minus four just to move. And mm -hmm. so it, it slows you down and it really reduces your effective, uh, your, the effect of your shooting. And the only way to get rid of it is to pass a rally order in the command phase. Right. And if, again, if you're a, if your commands too, Good luck ever getting rid of that suppression. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one of those things. There's, I like how there's gradients to this because, again, I love bolt action as a tabletop game uh, in a, a sort of a platoon size or larger. With this, um, if I've played some very small-scale bolt action games, and if you have a couple of guys who go down, I mean, we know in bolt action when you go down, you're not going anywhere, you're not doing anything, you're just down. Sure, you're harder to hit, but your guys aren't doing anything. Now, that can feel real bad when you don't have a lot of models on the tabletop. Now, this, if you have models that get suppressed, um, which is this or early stages of um, pinning, you can still move. You're just moving slower, and you're not hitting as well. Again, and as that ratchets up and they become pinned in the Spectre Ops version of that, um, as you say... They're moving for less, which is a significant amount um, when talking about a model's move stat. But then their shooting is minus three. Um, that is a hefty penalty. So you're less likely to be able to do anything, really. Um, and you can't make command sprints. So you really are slowed down. But you're not completely out of it, right? Not completely, but effectively you are. Because if you're shooting is only three and it's minus three, then you're at zero before any modifiers. Yeah. So you're probably not going to hit anything. And if your move, your basic move is six inches, mm -hmm. then you're moving two inches. Yeah. And yeah, so you can move two inches and can't hit anything if you're pinned. I got to uh, say, routed, uh, there, you... there were a few uh, moments in bolt action games though, where 
I had guys who were down and I really wanted them to move that two inches. So just to, (laughs) just to be able to move anything at all is nice sometimes to be able to crawl into cover. Right. Right. Sometimes two inches is all you need to get, you know, around a corner or something. Mm -hmm. Or get to that objective in the end game, you know, whatever it is. Right. 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 Cool. Well, uh, let's, let's talk um, movement. And so movement, as we said, everyone moves six inches, as you just said. Um, Now, each model can perform a tactical action either before or after they move as part of the movement phase. Um, they can deploy non-lethals. They can uh, combat sprint. There's a tactical movement, um, which is a slower style of movement, right? But um, gives them... Uh, is it is it that you get a better defense? Um, as in you're moving carefully. Uh, there's moving into close combat. There's you know going to help someone who's hurt. And then, of course, we talked about breaching earlier. Um, yeah, there's a lot here. Um, having do you do you like how there's the different types of moving in this game? I do. Um, yeah, because you can combat sprint. So you, if you need to move faster, you mm-hmm. would just you're always going to move your six, and then you can choose to move your add your agility score to that. And, and the higher you know level you are, the more agility. I think the operator's five, mm-hmm. so you can move eleven inches total. I think a militia is like three, so they're only moving eight, eight inches at max. Um, and then you can move tactically. So hold on, but if, but if you combat sprint, you can't shoot. Right. And you yeah. can't go into hand-to-hand so combat, and you can't be sneaky because you're making a lot of noise. Right. It's it's only for it's good for getting across streets or to some place on the board that you really need to get to. Nice. Well, let's let's move on then to the other type. Um, so, how is a combat sprint different from tactical moving? Uh, tactical. So, tactical will be you're sneaking, you're using cover. Uh, when you're moving tactically, you can only move as far as your agility. Mm. So, again, the operator's moving five tactically, which is pretty good. That's it almost is. your full move. Mm-hmm. And then. The lower level guys are really not moving very far if they're going tactical. It's almost like they're just kind of sitting in place and finding some cover. But when you do move tactically, you get plus one to your defense, which is a big deal. That is. That is. And we'll get to that with shooting. But you can also, um, you can also during the movement phase, and it's interesting because I think this is the only game that I, I see something like this in the movement phase, which is deploying non-lethal. So throwing a, a smoke grenade, for example. Um, popping right. smoke and you you can do that and then still shoot later um yeah yeah which yeah, are stun grenades any uh, any non-lethal i think there's stun grenades smoke grenades um there's some other other types too i think i can't recall them off the top of my head but uh it's because this game has a lot of them <laughs> yeah yeah, it does. I'm looking at the thrown and non-lethals right now. It's mm-hmm. it's quite a few. That's right. Not many non-lethals. <laughs> Most right. of them are lethal. <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure where to get into how to get... I'm not sure where to hit medic because the, the way that you take damage in this game is a, a little more detailed than you would see in a lot of uh, toy soldier games. Yeah. So maybe we should talk about shooting and then what the what medics can do for you. Um, so in this game, shooting, um, it's it's a contested role, right? Both players roll, and one player adds their shoot stat, and the other one adds their agility stat, and you're comparing those. 
Um, and then that determines whether or not you hit. And then you need to see um, roll on the lethality of your weapon. It, it's not experience like you might see in a game like Bolt Action. Um, and it's not armor or toughness score like you'd see in like a Games Workshop game. In this game, it's you're rolling on the lethality of the weapon. Um, how do you like that as a player? Because, I mean, clearly you, you enjoy the game, um, but it is slightly different than what you see in a lot of game systems, right? Yeah, it is. Um, so you roll your shooting against the opponent's defense stat. Mm -hmm. and oh, it's defense, sorry. Yep. Yeah. And then there's all kinds of, mod I mean, there's tons of modifiers. So the weapons themselves can have attachments on them. So you could have a red dot a scope. You could have a laser pointer. All these are going to give you a plus one. So... We'll just take, for example, an operator again. We'll say um, his shooting is like five or six. We'll say five. Mm -hmm. And then, so if you his if his weapon had a red dot on it, then he would be a six. And the the attachments uh, give you bonuses for various ranges of the weapon. So if you're in the first range band, you're using your red dot. If you're in the second one, then you're using your scope. But you get the same plus one just from two different attachments. So you can and then stack once them. You, uh, you can, yeah. yeah. There's lots of different attachments, and they do stack. But like the red dot and the scope don't stack because the red dot's only good in the first range band, and the scope's only good outside of the first range band. Now, can you explain what the range band is? Because that's a really interesting aspect of this game as well. A lot of us are used to, you know, bolt action. Rifles have a range of 24 inches, um, which if you're playing on a six-foot table... That's not very far. And yet right. we know that if you have a fixed sight rifle and you're shooting at distance in real life, you're going to shoot a lot further than that. Now, I know that that's explained away in bolt action in games like that. I mean, game, Games Workshop games are like that as well. Um, bolt action, I think bolters have a range of 24, at least they used to, um, as well, even though we know that they're probably further away. But it, they talk about the effective range, you know. When you are in the middle of combat, are you really going to stop and aim and do all of that? Which is why sniper rifles have much further range in a lot of these games. But in this game, it's a, they try to take that realistic approach a little bit further. And that's accomplished through range bands. Um, can you explain how that works? Yeah, so a range band is, is how far the weapon, kind of its effective range... Um, so it's like, for example, an assault rifle's got a 24-inch uh, range interval. And I believe a weapon can shoot out to four range intervals. Yes. So you know, you, a, an assault rifle can get you pretty far out there. Meanwhile, a machine pistol is only eight inches. So even at four range intervals, you're not getting that far. And then every range interval that you're past the first one is a, an additional minus one to your shooting skill. Mm-hmm. So if you're shooting extreme range, you're immediately dropping like three on your shooting skill. And shooting skills never, you know, base shooting skills are always below five. Uh, it's only really that high for the elite guys, but everyone else is in you know, three or four range. So mm -hmm. shooting uh, at extreme range with a regular guy is almost a guaranteed miss right off the bat. And that's before you start adding any modifiers in for... Um, terrain and, and cover and stuff like that i know in the game again talking about the the game that i watched just this morning um where you had again those guys in the hotel there were people across the board in another building and you guys were shooting at each other as the game started but i i 
just looked across it was a massive mat of terrain and then all of a sudden people are shooting over you know that two tall buildings on either side and people are shooting at each other at the full length of the board that just is not something I, I was necessarily used to right off the bat and was thinking wow what are the ranges of those weapons and then i remembered that how the range bands work in this game and it really does right. um it's a little more realistic i guess I'm very unlikely that you're going to hit or hurt someone at that range but I believe but that someone suppress. did. And as you say, suppression, right? Yeah, that's. I think in that game, that was what we were going for more than hitting was just to try to get their heads down and hopefully get a suppression, which I did wind up getting one on my guys. Mm-hmm. And then but that, it's always, even if you can't hit, you're still, if you can't hit, you can still put suppression on. And that's an important thing to remember in this game. Well, then it allowed you, your guys, to then move forward who are actually on the ground and not in the building. Um, By getting the other guys to duck their heads down, it it, it allowed you a little more flexibility and freedom to to move your forces, you know, that were in the urban urban sprawl between those two buildings, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a a good tactic in the game is suppress them. I mean, if you got to cross a big open area, even if you can't kill the guys that are covering that area, you can get their heads down and then you can combat sprint across and hopefully you can get across without taking too much damage. But that's, I mean, that's part of the game is, is the suppression and forcing them to keep their heads down and uh, moving under the cover of that fire. That's right. Well, once you have actually hit someone um, and that has happened again, you roll on the lethality chart, right? Um, you go to your weapons profile, you see what the lethality is and you roll to see if you kill the person. But even if you don't, um, there is an effect in this game, right? Yeah. So if you hit someone and then you don't kill them, uh, you roll to see what happened to them. So they can be either just stunned um, temporarily stunned for like one turn or phased. I forgot what the exact term is. Right. Or you can start bleeding out. And that's, uh, there is some bookkeeping in this game. If you're going to really play it by the book, we've we've made some house rules kind of simplified a little bit. But mm-hmm. um, like, for example, we only do bleed outs really on operators. We're not going to keep track of every single militia guy that's bleeding. And because that just takes a lot of effort to do. So um, you can either be bleeding out. You can be incapacitated. Um, there's, I think there's four or five different levels of, yeah. So you got your light wound, medium wound, serious wound, and catastrophic wound. So light wound is your stun for one turn. Medium wound is your stun for two turns. And then, uh, you got models with serious wounds are bleeding and then catastrophic wounds are, you're just straight up incapacitated and will bleed out in three turns. Unless somebody, does this medic action to try and unless, heal you. Right. Unless somebody happens to have a med kit and is right there by you. That's right. Which isn't always, uh, you know, very, uh, those aren't necessarily right. prevalent on this tabletop. Um, not no. everyone's holding a first aid kit in the, in the, in the field, unfortunately for some of these guys. Um, I know that I've no. seen on both your channel, as you say, you have sometimes some house rules with it, but I've seen in some other videos that I've watched that, um, there are other people who have either the same or similar house rules where sometimes they just say you're either, you know, if you rather than rolling on the chart, they'll just say, oh, you're wounded. And if you take another wound like that, you're out. It's almost like you have two wounds. If you take a minor wound, you're taken out. 
Um, and that way it, it, it takes into account the fact that someone has been hit. Maybe, and, you know, again, they've survived. But if you take too many hits, either they've ducked their heads and run away, um, you know, living to fight another day, or they've just, as you said, bled, you know, to the point where they're unconscious or they're just taken out of action. Um, do you think, um, as someone who's played this, that maybe the wounds might be, I know I've seen a lot of people talking about house rules for this, that they might be a little more detailed than a lot of people want to deal with when playing this game. You know, like almost the turret jam rule in bolt action that maybe it's not the most popular set part of the rules and people ignore it. Or is it just that when you're playing larger games, um, it's one of those things that you want to dial down, but when you're playing the smaller games, you want that detail and you dial it up. Well, usually the um, I agree that the rule that if you followed those wound rules for every model on the table, it could get pretty daunting. Um, that's why we just don't really bother with anyone but the operators keeping track of bleeding and all that, because they're they're the only ones that um, you're gonna want to try to save. Like if there's a militia guy laying out in the middle of the street bleeding, you're not gonna run out there and try to save him. You're just gonna let them bleed out. I mean, it's it's kind of sad to say that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> gameplay-wise, you're not gonna risk more militia guys or or an operator to run out and try and stop the bleeding on someone, unless he happens to be the objective. Then then of course you're gonna have to. So any any scenario-based figures or operators are really the only people that we're gonna really keep track of. That otherwise we're just gonna say, okay, he's bleeding. Um, He's just going to die. Yeah. Or if you're lucky, they'll just get incapacitated. Once that happens, then they're just done, and you're not going to ever revive them. So, yeah, it, I agree that the, uh, the the bleeding out table can be a bit cumbersome when you're trying to track it for every single model. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about the different types of characters. Because, we, I mean, we've talked about different model types a bit, but in this game you have the elite tier who are the operators that we've talked about several times throughout. Then we have professional tier, um, who are professional soldiers, well-trained, um, usually well-equipped. You have your trained tier, who are more of your regular soldiers. Um, again, they are fairly well-equipped, depending on which military they're part of. Uh, then we have our militia tier, who are, you know, kind of trained. Um, and then we have our, you know, in, who may have weapons they've scrounged or have been donated to them may may not be the most up to date but they they're not likely to have you know nice body armor and um you know red dot sights or night vision goggles right. or anything like this um and then we have our untrained tier who uh you know, really are just sort of the dregs or untrained people who just <laughs> sort of run around the tabletop um not really knowing or quite what to do sorry go ahead or civilians or civilians. civilians. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a, there's quite a lot that is... Uh, th there's a lot of gradation there. Uh, do you think that, um, that those gradients are balanced? I mean, you mentioned that before. Which do you prefer playing? I, I would imagine, as again, I picked this up to sort of play Vietnam conflicts, and I would imagine that I'd be playing largely trained against trained or militia. Is that... Does this game really lean heavily? Do you need to have your operators? Or can you play games and have a good time using... Not, I mean, I know this game is specifically 
geared towards, you know, the more elite movie or the elite troop types um, sort of combating those who aren't. I mean, a lot of the aspects of the game lean in that direction. But can you play this game without that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we played games where it was uh, trained and militia against each other before, and it works. It works fine. Um, there's also gradients within the different levels as well. So you have commanders, sergeants, and soldiers inside of each of those. So that's even more ways to uh, add some variety into uh, a game. And if you're running, you know, a trained soldiers against um, militia or um, professional soldiers just by themselves with no sergeant and the trained guys have a sergeant, then they're pretty close as far as uh, command and everything goes. So there's ways to to boost up the lower guys by giving them a, a commander or a sergeant. And that kind of will make the initiative rolls a little closer as long as you're not pinned or anything. Um, but like you said, I think it is geared more towards the operators. And I always like to have operators in there because those are kind of my characters that I follow uh, through the campaigns and the games that we play. And they're just a lot of fun because they're the ones that can take all the cool toys and they're the ones that are going to be sneaking in in the middle of the night to kidnap the scientist or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, there's no reason you can't do, say, trained, you know, drafted Americans in Vietnam against some Viet Cong or something as militia. That that'd be perfectly fine. Nice. Well, it's sorry. Go ahead. I was just gonna say it's it's the rules and the and the uh, dynamic and the and the way the game works that is is the good thing. It doesn't really matter what the levels are. I mean, you could do militia against militia, and it would still probably be a lot of fun. Good. Oh, I, I hadn't seen a lot of games of this played without the elite operators, which is why I kind of had to ask. I guess my other question is, given that this game is a little bit more zoomed in on the, on the tabletop, you're going to be playing on a smaller tabletop generally. You're going to be playing maybe with more durant, uh, dense terrain. Uh, you're going to be having fewer models than you might have in a lot of tabletop games. Um, it, it almost like this is skirmish or a step above skirmish, um, as in model count wise, I guess because it's so zoomed in, it does make me wonder since there's such a focus on the in individual infantrymen on the tabletop, how do vehicles slot in with this? Because my God, there are pages of options of vehicles, but when you look at the stats and then you look at, you know, what a regular person on the tabletop is. They do seem very uh, significant uh, on the tabletop. How do vehicles play out? Because I know that in uh, the game that, I, again, I was watching this morning, there was a, an empty tank in the middle of the, the battlefield. And just like those awesome 80s video games, um, you had some guys run up and jump in one. And then they got to control the tank. And that was a significant moment in the game. Uh, how do vehicles play out on this? It, I mean, given how zoomed in it is, are vehicles sort of gods on this tabletop, or is there a nice balancing of that as well? Uh, they, they can they can be gods for sure. If you have a tank and no way to take it out, then you're in big trouble. So if you're going to bring a tank, you have to have some kind of way for the opponent to take it out. So like in that game, I gave everyone some um, RPGs or AT4s mm -hmm. or some, some means to deal with it. But uh, normally we're playing with like MRAPs or technicals, 
And if you're just driving around in a Toyota with a machine gun on it, that can be taken out with an assault rifle. Yeah. So there's you have a you have a chance to take out these lighter vehicles with just your regular personal weapons. You don't need anything special. But uh, it's definitely you don't want to start bringing tanks um, into the games just without any thought because they'll just be invincible and they'll ruin the game essentially. So they're kind of uh, special type of vehicle, I would say. You don't want to bring them unless it's part of the scenario and you give whoever's facing it a way to take it out. Well, in the same vein, since vehicles are kind of a big deal, what about the other gear? Because there are pages upon pages of gear. Now, we did talk a little bit about that earlier, about red dot sites and you know whether you can include some of the more modern up you know, high-tech gear with, uh, if you're playing in other uh, eras or if you're playing with inexperienced troops. But there are, I mean, a, an astonishing amount of uh, technical doodads and goodies that you can add to your troops in this game that really does change the way things interact on the tabletop. Um, you talked to us a little bit about gear because that that's also significant. And that really can bump up if you are playing with points, the point value of your individual trooper, right? Right. Yeah. The, and the, the gear, the equipment that's called in the book is really how you would really put a fine, uh, fine tune, uh, a scenario that you're going to do. So like I was mentioning earlier, you put IEDs out. Um, and then there's different ways to set these off. It can be, uh, remote detonated, they could be a tripwire, they could be a suicide bomber, that could be on a timer. So you could say, you know, in this many turns, this thing is going to go off uh, no matter what. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also uh, minefields, there's dogs, different types of dogs you can get. You can get attack dogs, you can get dogs for detecting things. Mm -hmm. So like when you're doing your scan, your dog could do your scanning for you. And you can even give your dog equipment. So he could have a vest, like a bulletproof vest, mm -hmm. or he could have a communications so you can communicate with your dog if he's far off. He listens to your commands over the radio. Uh, there's laser, tar laser target designators, you know, repelling. You can repel off of buildings. Um, yeah, it's just that's, that's really the way that once you have your forces and your basic layout of your, your map and your scenario, and you can really get down in there and start adding all these different things to the board itself. That's going to make it uh, a lot more uh, complicated for the the operators or the, the good guys to uh, maneuver around. They're not just going to be able to charge in and just start blasting. They got to start really thinking about, you know, well, there might be an IED in the trunk of that car. I don't know what to scan it. So it's that's the way that I think that you're going to take it uh, from just a normal mission to something really unique. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the, my favorite bits of gear in this game is the ghillie suit. Now, snipers, um, you know, there are different ways to handle snipers in different games, but I think this one does a great job, especially, you know, if we all, we've all seen the movies where you have the sniper and they take the shot and then they duck and move because if they stay in the same spot, then they're going to be spotted. And this game takes that into account. Um, you can fire as a sniper, and there's a chance that people won't be able to figure out where you are. But if they do, they can then spot and start shooting at you. But there's also the sniper can crawl along uh, and still maintain their uh, location without being spotted. Um, but uh, they do have to move, and then 
then that process can start again. But of course, the ghillie suit makes that even harder. I've always wanted a, a good, I mean, not just visually a ghillie suit model, but I want that in a rule set. When I was a kid, we lived in Japan. And when I was in Japan in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, my friends were part of a Japanese airsoft uh, team um, that would get together. And there were parks in Tokyo. I'm getting off topic here, but I thought a few people might enjoy this. And we had airsoft rifles and pistols, and we would go out and you know play missions. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm so, I love tabletop gaming and tactics so much is because we did it competitively. I was always sort of the ring in, join in on the side. It was like paintball, but with BB guns, um, you know, airsoft BB guns. But you were dressing up in, in proper military gear and running around in the woods. And in the middle of Tokyo in the 80s, it was a little weird. But it was a lot of fun. But I remember my buddy Joji getting a a proper ghillie suit. And I remember the first time that I was going for the, the flag and I was about to grab it and I felt a very sharp pain in my rear end and I turned around and there was Joji waving at me. But I swear to God, it was like I hadn't seen him 10 seconds before because he blended in totally. And it's one of those things that you just don't see in a tabletop game. But having actually experienced that as a person, that he literally appeared out of, this little shrub appeared out of nowhere and turned into a human being, it's really cool to see that in this game. But I think that that is indicative of a lot of the gear in this game, right? Yeah, yeah, the ghillie suit's really cool. If you got a really good sniper in a ghillie suit, uh, you could, I mean, you can't detect them. So it's, until you start shooting, there's not really any way to find them, so it's it's a really cool game mechanic. Uh, we don't we haven't used it very often, but we've used it a couple times, and uh, it's it's pretty badass. Yeah, I I, I having read the sniper rules in this game, I really want to see a, a proper sniper duel in the middle of the game. You know, have a sniper on either side, you know, hunting each other, and then looking around, and then other people trying to spot uh, spot them. Meanwhile, you know, they're doing their uh, their job, and you know, seeing what what what's what. I'm I'm. That, I think, is the thing I want to see most on the tabletop with this game, um, just having read that. But then how that plays into the scenario, because as we said before, this game isn't your standard uh, tabletop you know, battle game um, that you might see in a lot of places because it is so narrative-driven. Now, I happen to notice, and you know, blush, thank you uh, very much, that I saw you playing... Heartbreak Ridge, the old Bolt Action Alliance mission that I wrote a million years ago, I saw you playing that mission uh, in sp with Spectre Operations, and it worked really well, and I was very happy about that. But you typically wouldn't use a mission like that. Uh, it's more of a, a narrative drive, you know, as we say, capture the, uh, capture the, the drug lord, or rescue the scientist, or um, get the intelligence, or... Um, wipe out the insurgents. There's, um, but there's there's more layers than you might see in other games, right? And that and that tape and that factors into your table size. I know that oftentimes one of the first thing I say when I'm talking about a new game is how big the tables are to give you an idea of scale. But in this, the table sizes shift. Sometimes it's a three by three. Sometimes it's a four by four. Uh, and the rules very clearly say it depends on what you're trying to do with the tabletop and your terrain density. Um, now, how, when you're setting up your tables, um, how do you do that when you're choosing your missions? Because that really is a huge part of this game, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. It depends. It really just depends on the scenario. Um, like if you want a sniper, you probably should have a bigger table, like a six by four. Uh, if you got more guys, like the game we just played that you were talking about was a six by four. Uh, but normally we're playing on a four by four size table. And that's when you're only running 15 models or so per side, if that, uh, that's more than enough room. And it's, it's kind of the standard size, I would say, that we normally play on. Rarely do we play on a six by four. We have before. Uh, one time we were doing a mission where we had to sneak in with these laser listening devices and listen in for this conversation and get some intel. And then from that, we were going to base the next mission on. So we wanted to have a lot of room for that one so we could get in a good spot with our laser and microphone and listen in. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really just dependent on whatever your your mission is. Yeah. And speaking of mission points and uh, things that you might see in a movie, uh, I can't help but notice a John Wick model in this game. Yeah, the Baba Yaga. I have I got that one too. He's he's mm-hmm. got his own rules. Um, he's really tough to kill, and we've used him before. It was, was uh, it was pretty epic. You've used him in a game. How scary yeah. is the Baba Yaga on the on the tabletop? He's very scary. Um, he uh, he was trying to get the doomsday. They were trying to chopper the doomsday device out of the city, and he fought his way through all the enemies, got all the way up to the top of the hotel, only to be killed by the pilot. Oh, <laughs> right wow! Right at the last minute. <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. Yeah, it's like oh, here's John Wick. He's you know he's just chasing his way through dozens of enemies, and then mm-hmm. the pilot pistol out as he's about to take off and just takes him down. Nice. Yeah, he's got some pretty interesting rules. Yeah, he looks super fun, and the model is very Keanu accurate. It 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 really yeah. does look awesome. Yeah, I think there's a couple different ones actually. There's one with him with a pistol. I think there's another one that he has a a carbine or something. Well, Travis, I think um, when we start digging in hard on uh, John Wick models, it might be time to call it a day. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, guys. Again, if you have not checked out Travis's channel, Tabletop CP, look it up on YouTube. He does games, all kinds of games. I know he said five or six, but I know that's a bold-faced lie. He's got tons of great <laughs> games on there. Uh, and again, just because he's so consistent with one or two games a week over such a long period of time, there is a hell of a library. I highly recommend you go to the channel, you go to videos, and you scroll back because there is some brilliant stuff on there um and it, i won't lie it, it's it i think that he is uh easily the 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 channel i've watched most on youtube so if you haven't check it out there's great stuff on there and travis thank you so much for taking the time i know you're more of a video guy than an audio guy but it is uh, always ha- amazing to talk shop with you yeah thanks for having me on brad i always uh, enjoy coming on now, I know that you, like me, sometimes rock week to week, but is there any, uh, any, any big happenings or games that you're a little itch in the back of your head that might be making an appearance on the channel soon that people can look forward to? Or what are some of the big uh, videos that you guys have done recently that you're particularly proud of? Um, well, I think we're going to be starting a new pint-sized campaign uh, next week. We haven't run a pint-sized campaign for Chain of Command for a little while, so... Uh, my friend Steven, he wrote one. He writes these for us, um, and he's really good at writing them. We played one, his Saipan one, not that long ago. Mm-hmm. This one's uh, Early War, 1941, Russia. 
So that's going to be the next big thing we do. Uh, other than that, uh, yeah, just the, all the stuff we've done recently with um, all the upgraded editing, I think, is, uh, is, is pretty cool um, if you want to check those out. Um, going back too far, you might start getting into uh, older videos, which maybe aren't as high quality as the most recent videos, but they're still decent, I guess. There's still good content in there, my friend. There's still good content as someone who digs through them. So, yeah, check them out, guys. Seriously. And, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to check us out at Cast Dice. If you have any requests for games to cover, I know I'm still catching up from the backlog of the short hiatus I took recently, um, this being one of those episodes. Uh, if you have a request of things that you'd like us to talk about, uh, or you just want to tell me I said something wrong, which is very possible, <laughs> not infallible, uh, or you just want to say hi, uh, just go to Cast Dice on Facebook, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. Uh, and if you message the page, you're guaranteed a response by me. My name is Brad. Hi. Uh, just know that sometimes you're in a different part of the world. I am broadcasting from Melbourne, Australia, and uh, I, I am asleep sometimes. So uh, I will guarantee a response, usually within 12 hours, depending on my sleep schedule and what work's doing. But yes, uh, thank you so much again, Travis, for joining us. And thank you guys for listening. I think that just leaves us with the old saying that our old buddy Casey always says, which is when you are playing these games that we know and love, I hope your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are very cold. But more than anything else, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. And the